0: Hey everybody, Andrew here, (coughs) back from my ski vacation. So yeah, the geeky thing, everybody turn on the camera for just a second, yay!
1: Oh, hi everybody,
0: (laughs) nice to see everybody. All my friends from everywhere, my European friends. Hi Mariana, this is great. Terrific, wonderbar, wonderbar. Okay, so yeah, I missed you all last week. I was, I had a terrific time skiing. I used to be a, 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 a mogul freestyle competitor. So I I, I still go out there and, and uh, torture myself on all the bumps and we had a couple of really great powder days. It was really great fun. So a couple of things, um, we released uh, the interview with Krishna Das last week. I had a terrific, time with this remarkable individual. First one we've done on music, which is also one of my really big passions. Um, And KD, he's just a great guy. Uh, If you ever get a chance to go to one of his kirtan events, I highly recommend it, Uh, quite magical actually. Um, Tantra Pure Lands, next weekend, the second weekend of this kind of two-part series I'm doing with Bob Thurman. First one is on Sutra, we already did that. The second one's on Tantra next uh, week from this Friday. I'm actually quite excited about this. Again, I was looking at my notes. I hadn't, haven't presented on this stuff in eight, eight years. No, what am I saying? 14 years, 14 years. It's the last time I talked about this stuff. And as I'm rereading all the stuff, uh, going through new material, going through um, original material, I realized that there's a lot in this one. Um, it's really cool. So some of the things we're gonna be talking about, those of you who are students of Shambhala, We talk about, at least I'm gonna explicitly request that Bob does this, Um, Shambhala, what it is, what kind of a pure land is it? It, It's a terrestrial pure land. It's also connected to what are called the hidden lands or or Bayul, B-E-Y-U-L. So we'll be talking about Bayul principle. Um, We'll be talking about the Kalachakra Tantra, uh, which is deeply connected to Shambhala and in particular, the second of five chapters in the Kala Chakra, <clears throat> which is all about the indivisibility between inner and outer. And that's really the, the kind of the tact that I take with these two weekends. So the first one was more pure land, how land affects mind. The second one was more pure mind. And so how mind affects, mindscape affects landscape. So the ultimate fruition of course is pure mind, pure land and how they are fundamentally non-dualistic and support each other. So I'm I'm, I'm grooving on this program. We also talk about um, pilgrimage, outer pilgrimage and inner pilgrimage. Um, How on one level, going to outer locations is tremendously impactful, especially for tantric practitioners to work with kind of outer body correlates to inner body processes, super interesting stuff. Um, Pure perception, threefold purity, sacred ground all this kind of stuff, sacred geography, it's really pretty cool. So I'm psyched about that. Um, And so what I wanted to talk just ever so briefly about today before we turn to questions, if you're new to what we do do here on these Thursdays, this is like, I don't know how many we've done now, probably close to 50. Um, I come in, I spontaneously talk about whatever, that's why I like these events. And then we open it up to Q and A and there's some really great questions that were actually submitted in writing. So I'm gonna turn to those and then we open it up and we just have a, a lively, hopefully lively discussion. But, but I did want to say something just a little bit more about, um, you know, many of you know by now, of course, what happened literally 10 minutes from, from where I live. Andy just told me before we went right. on, he drove by that site, <clears throat> which is close to where he is as well. I've been in this grocery store hundreds of times. And so it's, it's uh, you know, boulders bleeding right now. There's, there's a lot of, you could just feel it. Um, it's a. It's very interesting. It affects dreams, you know, collectively and as well as individually. So I've been dreaming about this kind of stuff and thinking about it a lot. And I wanted to just share a couple of things. I, I, I um, asked Andy to post a link. There's a number of really interesting studies, articles, in and in fact, I think there's even a book. I haven't read it yet on um, empathy, and um, how important empathy is, you know, to put yourself in, in, the, in the place of the victim, um, victims, um, family members and all that. But empathy alone is not, is not enough. In fact, empathy alone is, is slightly problematic, um, believe it or not. And, and I, the, post, the, the study I posted is, or it's actually an article that refers to studies by my friend, Dan Goldman, um really wonderful guy. He's the guy who wrote Emotional Intelligence. Also co- co-authored this really quite fine book a couple of years ago with Richie Davidson on altered traits. Um, really a, a sharp, impactful thinker. And it, this is a kind of a summation of some really interesting studies about the limitations of empathy and how um, you can get kind of sucked into that kind of quicksand thinking that, oh, this is all I really need to do is feel somebody else's pain. Well, it's a start, but these studies show that if, if we don't actually act on it, yes, it's, it's important to, to feel empathic for sure, but empathy alone isn't enough. Um, you know, enlightened action is enough. or isn't, I shouldn't say is enough. Enlightened active, activism is really what should be inspired from empathy. So in that little link that's up there, there's also a nice guided practice that uh, Daniel includes. Um, I was going to say we could do it together, but, but maybe, uh, I can just read it or you can read it and do it on your own. But, but what I wanted to share with you just a little bit in relation to all this is how I've been working with this. And, and one of the most important things is, um, and this is my style of working with unwanted experience is I think first and foremost is just being with it, you know, just being with that hurt that heap of hurt. And so, for me, you know, when I feel the absolute, I mean, it's just this kind of collage of feelings, as I'm sure it is for many people, you know, of just tremendous sadness, um, heartache, and then also anger. I mean, just real anger um, at all the things that we can rightly be angry about, you know, the, the absolute ineptitude of Congress to enact gun legislation when 90% of the population supports it. I mean, really? So frustration, anger, heartbreak, sadness, this real kind of um, painful palette of the human condition. And so for me every morning, you know, since this happened, um, what I do is I just sit with it. And sometimes I'll, I'll actually just put my hand over my heart center as a way to invoke or evoke a a holding environment that, you know, I'm not feeling so great right now, Um, but just imagine all these other people who are really not feeling so great. And so for me, one of the most important things, and not only for this experience, but for any unwanted experience is not to dilute it, not to distract it, not to run from it, but also not to indulge it to, as I often say, to feel it, but not feed it. And this is a really, I think, a very important thing, um, and actually dovetails into a lot of really, I think, intelligent psychological thought. Is that, and spiritual thought is that if we don't give ourselves the space, the courage, the patience to just be with these unwanted experiences, we don't process them properly. Then you know we repress them, we project them, we do all the things we normally do, anything but be with it is crappy isn't it? as god-awful as it feels if we don't uh, it's like dafrijan once said maybe some of you may know this work this really radical iconoclastic american um sage nut um he had a big influence on me <laughs> many years ago dafrijan dalavananda da samaradi i mean he changed his name like every week but he was a really interesting guy he wrote and he often taught about um how did he put it? The fire must have its way. The fire must have its way. And really that means having the courage of being in the fire um, and metabolizing it, processing it, allowing it as uncomfortable as it is to flow through you. Because if, if we don't, if I don't, it lodges, it creates a kind of undigested psychic abscess, some samskaras that then get lodged in your body-mind matrix. And there they fester. And then they arise symptomatically. And then they add to this 95 to 99% of unconscious processes that colors all our experience. And therefore when the next difficult situation arises, you bring the history of this one to that. This is what brings about things like complicated grief, complicated reactivities where we, we very, very rarely relate to experiences as they truly are because we have so much baggage and a large part of this baggage is brought about by our inability to be with these wretched experiences when they arise when we're children that's a different matter and it's so much more difficult you know as kids we can't we don't have the brain structure the psycho spiritual apparatus to actually digest experience and so it's like birds who have to you know who chew the food and then feed it to their kids you know we look at our caretakers our environments our parents that digest and metabolize our experience for us. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But as we grow up, the psycho-spiritual imperative or invitation is to work with digesting, metabolizing the experience by first of all, just being with it. Um, and I remember very clearly Reggie Ray many years ago, um, he said something that really struck me when we were talking about the 12 Madonnas. And he said, you said, you know, feeling like total crap, feeling like total shit does not create karma. It's the fruition of of karma, but it doesn't create karma. And so if you're feeling really bad and you just have the ability to be in that fire, it's like Suzuki Roshi said, you know, we, we need to be good bonfires, don't be a smoky fire. Smoky fire would be diluted. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll take a drink, I'll go to a movie, I'll, I'll engage, engage in active laziness, I'll do anything but to stay with this crappy experience. Now, you know, spiritual warrior, you stay on those fires. And then as painful as they are, they purify, they self-liberate, you live very cleanly, um, as painful as that is. So that's what I do every morning. And what I did for the first couple of days after that It was on Wednesday or Tuesday. I can't remember when the Denver post put up articles, little clips and articles, pictures of all 10 people. And I I read it, I went through it and I looked at all these pictures and I I actually clipped it out and kept it um, next to my puja table. It was part of my morning practice for Tong Lan. And so what I'm going to recommend we do with your indulgence for a second is I asked Andy to pull up these pictures um, so that these people are, a little bit more real to us, these people with lives and families and you know just all the pain. So what we can do, let's do 10 breaths of Tong Lin, one breath for each one of these people as a way to connect open to ourselves and to them and therefore bring some sanity and benefit to this otherwise insane situation. So whatever kind of pace, so to speak, works for you, 10-breath Tonglin session, one breath for each one of these amazing people whose lives are so prematurely taken. So one of the things you can do that I do with situations like this is actually specifically dedicate the merit of Tong Lin, any practice, any virtuous activity. You can can direct this very specifically to these people. And um, as I mentioned the other day in one of my programs, this is where it's really helpful to understand reality um, in the teachings on emptiness, because in so many ways, what these great wisdom traditions do is, is they empower, these are all empowering teachings because they strip away this ridiculous world view, you know, that the world is made of matter that, and that what we do with our minds really has a really inconsequential impact through prayers, through um, dedications of merit, aspirations and the like. But when you really understand the nature of, of mind and reality and realize the inextricable connectivity between that and all, all of us, then we actually have uh, so much more power than we think to bring, bring benefit. And so for these people that um, are probably most um, well, certainly still in the Bardo, you know, some of them quite bewildered, um, confused. Some of them may not even know that they're dead. Some of them will have recognitions that they're dead. They come back, they come around the situation moments of lucidity, then habits come in, they forget. And so, uh, with our, um, sensitivity and awareness, we can actually invite them into our practice arena. We can, um, even speak to them. We can guide them. We can dedicate our merit to them. And so if that speaks to you, um, Something that could be of some benefit, especially within the first couple of weeks. According to Bardo principles, the first three weeks mostly they're still hanging around, and uh, you know we have the capacity actually to be of some benefit more than you more than you can imagine actually. So, okay. With that said, um, there were some really great written questions that came in. I'm going to turn to those first. I have to get my other computer open. And then we can talk about anything. Um, this event, that we, what we do here is any topic, almost any topic. I'm not gonna take conspiracy theories. <laughs> I'm not gonna talk about that sort of thing, but I think you get what I'm saying. So let me pull up questions. There are some great questions. So we alternate between Yeah, well, actually, let me start the one with Quilly, for sure. There's one more victim, for sure. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, situating the victim, uh, the villain, so to speak, um, and his mother. Just imagine what his mother feels like. Yeah, there's there's more than one victim, for sure. So this is what she said. He was a young Muslim who had re- re- relentlessly bullied all through his school years. <clears throat> he also needs our tongue land for sure, as does his family. May they find ease. <clears throat> they may be driven out of Boulder. Yeah. Well, they they live in Arvada, but yeah, you're you're right. Um, completely agree. And actually, I, I neglected to say that. That's actually what I do with my practice. So I start I start with the, the victims. Then I start with the victim's mother, uh, just because that to me is just I, I can't imagine what she is going through. His family, his brother, and then him. You know, you we can't act out towards others what we don't act out towards ourselves. So this incredible rage, anger, confusion, pain that he lashed out can only be expressed because that's what he's expressing towards himself. So uh, from Sarah, hi, Andrew. My question is about dream guidance. Are all non-lucid dreams samsaric dreams? This is a long question, so I'm gonna parse this up. Um, Are all non-lucid dreams samsaric dreams? No, they're not. You can have uh, what Tenzin Wangyu Rinpoche calls about it, uh, talks about his dreams of clarity that are non-lucid but also non-samsaric. Um, you can also get guidance from non-lucid dreams that are, that are not samsaric. So not all non-lucid dreams are samsaric. Back to her. For years I have looked to my dreams and followed some of the guidance within them. Yet recently I have been wondering if this is just another way of my lower mind taking charge of my life. Yeah, uh, well, it could be. Um, what comes to mind here is that you know, as I frequently mentioned, we we exist along a spectrum from a really selfish to really selfless, from beast to Buddha, from psychotic to mystic. And so the lower mind, the lower bandwidths of that spectrum. Um they can still be beneficial to certain degrees. You know, this, this is why there's such a tremendous spectrum of therapeutic methods and modalities working at all these different bandwidths. So even though it's lower mind influencing, not every aspect of lower mind is deleterious or damaging. I mean, for instance, on a very basic level, you know, fundamental biological instincts, that you could say are part of the lower mind are absolutely instrumental for survival. Um, And fear is just one application of that. But, you know, to me, what came to mind when I read this question earlier was that the larger issue is lower mind, quote unquote, as unconscious mind. And how that lower mind, unconscious mind, takes charge of life, that is for sure, (laughs) and so, Again, like I've been saying a lot these days since I read Bruce Lipton's book, Biology of Belief, which I recommend because he puts numbers to these things. You know, At least 95% is dictated by these these so-called lower mind or unconscious mind influences, the forces of the dark side. And so the lower mind is in fact where most of our stored habits still reside. Some of them biologically are absolutely necessary for our survival, but a lot of them psychologically are not. They're outdated modes of operating. It's really an old operating system that just doesn't really, needs to be vastly updated or in some cases just jettisoned. And so um, these lower level influences still exert massive influences over our lives. And in fact, a large part of the path is in fact, identifying those, bring them, bringing them into the light of consciousness, purifying them, releasing them until there's no such thing as the unconscious mind until there's no such thing as the lower mind. So the lower mind really only becomes problematic when its influences remain unconscious or when we identify with those lower bandwidths. That's the only time they become problematic. You can use access to that, those lower dimensions, so to speak. In fact, um, once you wake up, as skillful means to relate to others who are still at these so-called lower levels, that's really what skillful means means is not meeting people where you're at meeting them when where they're at so a little sidebar there back to her i recently had a series of six dreams strongly suggesting that i move courses at college yet why am yet when i am learning on my current course i am enjoying it i haven't moved courses but remain open as to future change could you speak a little bit about this yeah, you know, I mean, if you're talking a little bit about dream interpretation and the like, that's a little bit more than than what I'm um, able to do. Um, you know, this kind of dream interpretation thing is, is a little bit outside of my pay grade. And it's also, I'm, I'm really, really careful about interpreting these sorts of things for people. Dream interpretation is incredibly powerful, super valuable, but it's it's really difficult, especially in a in a somewhat public setting and without being able to talk to you to really unpack you know, what's actually happening with these six streams and what they're really influencing or perhaps suggesting of you. So I, I'm gonna pass on that one. It's just a little bit more than I feel is appropriate to discuss in this format. But maybe some of the other stuff I said can be of some benefit. Barry, my dear friend, Barry. During the book club session this week, you said, this always freaks me out. Whenever, whenever people start to say that, Well, you say on page 295, it was like, oh, geez, you know, what did I really say? Or, oh, you said last week, it's like, oh, this is why, honestly, I wish I just, I wish I, I, on one level, tongue in cheek, I wish I didn't have to say anything. It's like, really, what did Rumi say? Silence is the language of God. All else is poor translation. I mean, that's fantastic. really great silence is the language of god all else is poor translation so anyway barry you always you always i always get worried when somebody said last week you said i i might have had a mind fart at the time who knows okay so apparently this is what i said (laughs) according to barry okay uh so i just so this is this is allegedly me we'll see how let's see if barry's accurate here or not oh yeah so i just this is allegedly me Reincarnating what, what I said through Barry's. <laughs> so this is the <laughs> Otter transcript. Oh, this, oh that's even worse. Oh, that can't even I can't even accuse Barry. So like I'm totally buried. Sorry, I'm totally buried. Get it? Um, <laughs> okay, so this is from Otter. This is makes it even worse because now I can't say it was Barry's fault. Oh yeah, so I just mentioned this footnote 14, Western View of the Minds. I would say the dreams are solid cystics. Oh, that's fantastic. So this is the way Otter transcribes solipsistic. That's great, solid, S-I-S-T-E-X, solid cystics. (laughs) Fantastic. Uh, uh, Let's see, Uh, I would say the dreams are solipsistic, Yes, okay. So basically what he's saying, I'm agnostic about, I'm paraphrasing this. So um, basically what I said was I'm I'm agnostic about this view. Originally, I maintained this view that all dreams are solipsistic. In other words, mind, it's just mind in there. It's just my mind. So I've changed, yes, I'm more open to to this view that not all of that is true, correct? Some of my most intense and transformative dreams have occurred when forces seemingly outside of my domain, mind, have influenced and entered my dreams. I'm okay with open questions. Now I'm more than just agnostic. Now I have room for this. Can you give us examples of such outside influences, how to work with these, if at all? Yeah, I can give you some. Um, well, yeah, so first of all, my view on this has changed. Just like I allegedly said, now I'm busted. Buried, buried, ba- B-A-R-R-I-E-D, buried by the truth. Um it's hard to assess sometimes where where this stuff comes from in your dreams. Um, and maybe you've already had dream experiences like this. You know, is it coming for me? Sometimes that's difficult to say, um, but sometimes in my experience, if you want some specific examples from my experience, um, I've absolutely positively had experiences and I continue to have them that, hey, man, that, that ain't coming for me. <laughs> and that, Parenthetically, philosophically, the whole idea of me versus not me, self versus other, comes into play here, because who is this me that's allegedly coming from or not anyway? So that's a, 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 a sidebar issue, but not a, 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 an unimportant one. Um, but let me share a couple of things where where I, I can tell you without equivocation that I've had these sorts of dreams. I've had um, dreams in the past, and you know every now and again for instance, of protectors um, entering my dreams. So in Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, there are these protectors, principles. I don't have any photos in my room, but right around in my other study, I have some really awesome tankas of these protectors. And there's a bunch of them. And I do um, practices every single night. Every single night I do these. Um, It'd be really cool to have a whole talk on protector principle, because these puppies can literally save your life. Uh, Let me just share one example. Jigar uh, Kantarin who who's a dear um, teacher, I know him a little bit, he was talking about this. And he said, You know, somebody asked him something about protectors. And um, he said, one example from his life, he was walking on a boulder trail. Some of you may know this. And he had the urge to, to pee in this bush. And as he was kind of walking towards the bush to relieve himself, he had this thought that said, Don't do that. And he, he actually, somebody had the intuition that said that that thought is not coming from me. And so he threw a pebble into the bush and oh, there was a rattlesnake in there. Protectors work that way. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, who knows because we don't live in parallel universes, but the way protectors work, and again, uh, this is all hypothetical. I'm just speaking really as, as a representative of the tradition here. You know, maybe the protector principal on Monday said, oh, I'm not gonna go shopping at Table Mesa today. I'm gonna go t- shopping at King Supers in Louisville today. It, it could be like that. I, I'm just, just saying. So I have, I have a very powerful connection to protector principle um, and I do these protector practices every day of my life. And if you want someday, if you want, we could do a whole class on this and I can give you some of these liturgies. These are no small thing. There's a reason the stuff is in the tradition. It's not just for social purposes. It's not anthropological mumbo jumbo. These protectors, excuse me, they're as real as we are. In fact, they're more real because they're more awake. And so I have a real deep allegiance to protectors. And so I had one dream, maybe someday I'll share the whole thing with you. It's one of the greatest dreams of my life, where uh, Ekajati, where one of my, um, and I have a, oh, I should have brought her. I have a Rupa statue of her. She's my babe. Sorry, I love you. <laughs> she, she not only entered my dream, she entered my mind in a dream. And it was like one of the greatest experiences of my life. And, and at that point, I knew, I said, man, this is definitely, I do not see the world this way. This is not me. This is the way the world appears through the eyes of Ekajati." It was one of the most shattering dreams of my life. And so I, I, I've had good fortunes to have these types of experiences. Those are the ones that are no brainers. You wake up from those and it was like, holy moly, Batman, that was amazing. The more kind of colloquial ones, they also happen a lot. Um, and those are a little bit harder to suss out. The, the really impactful ones you, you can usually glean just because of the impact, you know, you wake up from one of those, or, you, or in fact, even more importantly, you have one during the daytime experience, you know, that didn't come from me, um, and so, oh gosh, so many things to say here. You know, you you can even start to notice this now. So the other thing that I do, again speaking very personally, the other practice I do er, literally every day is Manjushri, and I have him. Can you see him up there? He's way up on top, right there. See him? And I also have. I mean, he's such a big deal. I have him everywhere. So here he is. I have him on my study, here's a picture of him right below a really cool gift I got from His Holiness 17th Karmapa. So I've got, I've got all these little props with me. So I do a Manjushri practice every, every single day. And if you, if you do these sort of things, you know yourself, you know, I'll be riffing along sometimes and even doing a, a presentation to teaching and all of a sudden some insight will pop up. And, and I just know, I said, that didn't come from me. That, that didn't come from me. That came from Manjushri. Well, then the question is, well, who is Manjushri? Who is Ekajati? Are they completely separate you know, energetics independent from me or are they archetypal energies of my own being expressing themselves in this way? They're both. There's no reason you can't have them as both. They are both that. They are, they are independent of us as these deities and, and energetics that we supplicate and establish relationships to. And they are equally just as much archetypes of our own being. And so by engaging in these practices, we can we can invite them, we can evoke them. I'm sure many of you have had these experiences. And then they start to help you. It's like Mipara Mamche once said, you know, one of the most, you know, every once in a while you get these teachings that are delivered at the right time. And for me, it's like Naropa slapping or talopa slapping Naropa, you know, he wakes up. You know, one teacher once said, you know, you're you are not alone. You are not alone. Just because you can't see these energetics, deities, archetypes, yidams. And this is again why the Pure Land stuff is so cool because you you blast open your horizons to the 27 other states of samsaric frequency existence and then all the other trans samsaric dimensions. You start to believe this stuff, it starts to work with you. Prayer comes into play here. Aspiration, magic comes into play here. So this is a great question, Barry, um, that, that leads to so many uh, interesting things, you know, just for the purposes of time, I'm gonna let it go for now. But the idea is that as we become more porous and transparent to ourselves, we become more porous and transparent to others and also to these energetics. That's the magic of tantric practice, the magic of these, even the shamanistic traditions. We're not alone, we can gather help. And like, if you're dreaming, you know, part of the Pure Land thing, Um, part of the Pure Land job description is is you can get, you know, they can send you dreams from the Pure Lands. So, you know, uh, gosh, you know, because these questions are so cool, that's probably as far as I can run with that for now, Barry, if you're on and wanna ask something more specific, more than welcome to do so. So I'm gonna take two more and then we'll open it up and then I'll come back to some of these other ones because these questions are so great. Um, Okay, so this one's from Christoph and then we'll take a live one. Are you aware of any impact on avoidant personality disorder or borderline personality disorder on the ability to achieve lucidity? You know, I'm not, um, Christoph, and if I don't think, I'm pretty up on these sort of things. Not a hundred percent, but pretty up on it. I don't know any of of any studies, especially about borderlines. I, I, by the way, I've had a lot of experience with people in my life with borderline, my sister, was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. I I actually had a dear, dear friend who suffered severely from borderline, really tough stuff. Um, Borderlines are um, really tricky, really tricky. Um, And so I don't know of any studies about the ability to treat lucidity, but I do know any particular kind of, psychological state or diagnosis that is at all dissociative. Um, and borderlines have that, can have that predisposition. Particularly though, however, I'm thinking more like the um, personalization, derealization disorders, dissociative identity disorders, that's extreme, used to be called MPD, multiple personalities. Those types of people should not engage in things like lucid dreaming without the sanction, the clearance and the blessings of a healthcare provider. Because while these practices, and my friend Ryan Hurd really writes beautifully about this, you know, lucid dreaming is really powerful, but anything that has the power to to cure also has, if it's not engaged properly, correlative adverse capacities. And so, you know, one example that comes to mind from things like virtual reality, there's a, a really interesting syndrome there, which I, I had a temporary experience of when I spent hours in, in virtual reality, it's called alternative world syndrome, where you spend so much time in VR that you come out and you don't know what's real. Um, this, you know, it's like, am I still in an app? Am I still on a program or is this the waking state? And so, until you have the psychospiritual capacity to fly in that type of space where it doesn't matter what arises, that that type of liquidity um, can be problematic for a psychological structure that is still based on hitching posts, still based on reference, still based on contraction. So if the if the grip on on contraction is released too prematurely, that can be problematic. It's like Uh, who was it, Mm, Jack Engler, the really sensitive psychiatrist, Buddhist practitioner said, you know, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. Because if you're nobody before you become somebody, you don't become enlightened, you become psychotic. Um, RD Lang, the other psychiatrist famously said, you've heard this, you know, the mystic swims in the same ocean where the psychotic drowns. So we have to be careful with these sorts of things. Um, They have a lot of power. But they're not for everybody, and there has to be a certain infrastructure in place. Usually, in my experience, it self-selects. In other words, people that are interested in this already have that kind of baseline stability, but not always. I mean, we get we get uh, when I do my deeper dive programs. Sometimes we get people who, who ask if they should come, and and I ha- you know I'm not a psychologist, but I do know a little bit about um, mental health issues. So um, there are times when we just say we don't think this is the best program for you at this time. So I can't answer your, your question specifically. I do not know of avoidant personality disorders and the ability to achieve lucidity. If they're out there, I don't know of them, but this is what comes to mind about um, kind of correlative topics, corollary topics. Okay, so we can take one or two live ones and then I'll come back. There's some more really good written ones, but I want to get some live ones first, okay?
1: And we have uh, Patricia and Glenn with their hands. Okay. Hi, Andrew
2: hi um i was wondering if you would be willing to play the piano of the most beautiful piece of music that exalts you and we send love to the 10 people who died (laughs) on a tuesday evening
0: Uh, when when do you want me to do that dear i'm sorry
2: tuesday evening
0: tuesday evening Okay. okay oh what a sweet thing note to self I will do that. Uh, two things immediately come to mind. Um, do you want me to tell you what they are or should I just- Yes. Them? Yeah, so the, the second movement of the Beethoven fifth piano concerto. Yes, yes. You know what? Yes. I mean, it's like it's like the most beautiful. I, I read it, I read it. I listen to it and it's like, this is what I want. It
2: blisses just, you out.
0: Yeah, yeah. this is what I want to be played at my, at my eulogy. It, it's just beyond beautiful. Well, let's like, play it before. <laughs> Yeah, or or here's a couple others if you know second movement of uh, the Greek piano concerto and the second movement of Chopin um, first piano concerto. And it's just it's just beauty beyond words, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. Um,
0: yeah. And then maybe some kirtan. So note to self, I will do that. I I will I will ping up the second movement of the Beethoven fifth piano concerto. Thank you, that
2: will be great. Yeah, we'll do it. Yeah.
0: Okay, I'm going to write that down. Note to self. Thank you, Patricia. Come back on Tuesday. I'll play it for you, okay? Oh, great. Okay. If I could bring my piano upstairs, I'd play it on my piano. But I don't, ha- I don't have an orchestra to back me up. So an I would,
2: app, just, I would, just,
0: I would just have to play the piano solo, so.
2: An app would be a VR.
0: There you go. Okay, come back on Tuesday. I'll do that for you, okay?
2: Thank you, great.
0: All right, another live one from Glenn. <clears throat> yeah.
1: uh, hi, Andrew. Hey. Uh, uh, so um, maybe you can comment or give me some advice on the following. Um, it, it's coming from an experience that started on Tuesday and then there's a redo of it today. And so I'm, I've taken uh, the Turgar Joy of Living three or four times and I'm in the middle of doing a current one in partly because friends of mine are doing it. And so I'm getting reintroduced to this sort of whole you know, system. So um, I was in the middle of a sleep on Tuesday and I realized that I was actually in open awareness during the dream. So then I woke up and I said, okay, it's dark. I'm just going to sit and do open awareness meditation on the bedside. And so usually I can't sustain it for more than five minutes but this night was amazing. It was like for 15 minutes and then go back into it. So the whole thing went on for about a half an hour. I also record my sleep so I know when I'm snoring. And then I went back to sleep and for the next two and a half hours, I stayed in that more or less. And so what I want to ask you about is there's two phenomena. One is I said, okay, so if it's about three hours of sleep here and I've only slept technically three hours, but I didn't feel sleepy. I felt like I had a full night's rest. Second part of the question is I was aware of being awake and then going into hypnagogia. And Mm -hmm. so the the lucid parts of hypnagogia and then there were lucid parts of dreams were very much like the dreams you were talking about. They're samsaric dreams. They were semi-lucid, I would call them. They're not like the lucid dreams I've had, which actually don't have relationships to people that I know. And these were all about people I know and my problems with them. And then the dreaming was partly about using a computer application to try. And because I was saying to myself, I'm not confronting someone here that I should, that I'm having this semi lucid dream with. that's a cousin of mine. Maybe I should do that. And then I got back into this computer thing about a, a way that apps can help you deal with people. And then I woke up. So, um, so those are kind of the two parts. It's it's kind of um, the lucidity in the dreaming was relatively mild, and it was very samsaric It seemed to be. Um, but also, I felt very rested. The same thing happened this morning, but I couldn't sustain lucidity for very long. It was off and on through the whole night. so.
0: Okay. Well, let me see if I, I under- uh, <laughs> let me see if I understand what you're asking. So, in relationship to the first question. It seems to be what I was hearing out of that, Glenn is that is, in fact, resting in, in these meditative spaces the same as, as getting the rest I would normally get with my sleep. In other words, you didn't feel tired, even though you didn't get your normal sleep. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, the TM people talked about this decades ago, that um, and there's different, there's different data that doesn't always support this, but my experience supports your experience is that when you're, when you're in these really deep restorative open spaces, um, con- and consciously it's as restorative as being in Delta sleep. And, and so this is also substantiated by the fact that the awakened ones literally don't need to sleep, right? Because you know, they hang out in this open space that in itself is, is fundamentally restorative. So if I'm understanding the first part of what you're asking um, my experience does bear out yours, that when you're resting in these deeper spaces, they are as restorative as deep dreamless sleep. Um, some researchers and scientists, be interesting to ask Ed what his understanding of this data is. Um, don't substantiate that from a scientific point of view, um, but he would know more about that than me. So is that, in fact, what you were asking with the first part of the question? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. And so the second part wasn't an, just summarize, if you can, the second part that was that, that didn't completely gel with me.
1: I, I think the question of it was that over a period of a couple of hours, I would go in and out from being awake on my bed into into hypnagogia and then into two dreams. And, and the two dreams, and I would categorize the hypnagogia and the two dreams as being semi-lucid, not really lucid. Okay. And so it struck me that doing this kind of um, wake-initiated dream, uh, dreaming was producing kind of dreams that were probably some start in the nature as opposed to the, some, a couple of really lucid ones I've had which are about moving through walls and lying and, and there isn't this um, family-related yeah. relationships I have.
0: Yeah, so you know, just because you're lucid and go into it with a quality of open awareness, again, most of our dreams are samsaric dreams because you know, most of our dreams are brought about by the kind of what is found now was found then, the samsaric residue of our lives embodied in your brain and in your body. Um, but that doesn't, again, dismiss the, the validity of bringing lucidity to those samsaric states. You know, just because they're based on these samsaric trajectories doesn't mean they can't be engaged and they can't be fruitful. So, um, you know, you're infusing that dreamscape with your quality of open awareness. You're, you're kind of perfuming with it, but that doesn't by um, default mean that those dreams will somehow be more elevated. Yeah, sometimes they can be. But again, you, you simply can just be bringing more awareness to the samsara content of your experience. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah. yeah, you know, eventually what you will find, that's why, you know, dreams are the measure of the path is that the samsaric dreams will eventually start to diminish. Um, eventually they will be replaced with dreams of clarity. Eventually those will be replaced with dreams of clear light. And eventually you're gonna stop dreaming. That may not happen for a while. <laughs> or another way to look at that is everything becomes a dream. It's actually saying the same thing. But until then, you know, you're, you're, you're actually infusing your nighttime hypnagogic and dream space mind with this quality of open awareness, but that doesn't necessarily purify every dream that arises just because, you know, it's just like a meditation, just because you're bringing an open relationship to the contents of your mind, doesn't mean that the contents that are rising in your mind in meditation are all gonna be um, nirvanic. They're still gonna be these kind of samsaric, bakchak latent tendencies expressing themselves. But the fact really, that you're bringing awareness, lucidity to that space, that in itself is actually really cool. Mm-hmm. And eventually that in itself becomes fundamentally curative. One of the things that, that,
1: that you just touched on is um, in the lectures that Minyer has given, Minyer Rinpoche on, on actually dream yoga, which he gives very little But This is within Bardo courses. He says, fall fall into sleep in awareness. Mm-hmm. And if you do it, you will wake up in awareness and you will not have dreams. And, and th- I always thought that to be,
0: that's very challenging, but that's pretty, that's, that's
1: graduate. school. Yeah. About, right? mm-hmm.
0: yeah. That's kind of graduate school. Yeah. If you can do yeah. that, that's fantastic. I mean, he's pointing out probably the way he dreams, which is great. And we can use that as, as aspiration and potential, um, but I wouldn't tie yourself too much into knots about that. Just realize, wow, that's really cool. I have that potentiality, but um, yeah, I mean, good, good for him that he's actually doing that sort of thing and good for you for being connected to that organization. They're, they're awesome. So cool. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Len. Okay. So I'm going to take a couple, one or two more written ones and then back to the live ones. So this is from uh, Candida. Canada. I, I'm not sure how, if, if I'm pronouncing your name properly. I got really interested in your essays on the three bardos, but it brings up a question for me, many questions really, but the main one is realizing that I rely on finding the center of my being in my body in the central channel. That's awesome. That's really cool. Good for you. I have located the center many times and I practice being in it often. Yeah, I think this is a, an inner way to talk about what it means to come to your center, right? We talk about, medi- oh, I'm going to go to my meditation center, right? You know, well, that meditation center may be a geographic location, but fundamentally, in terms of body, it's your central channel. So that's awesome. It's the center of the mandala. Um, I feel it is both full and empty. Excellent. And in my best meditations, it feels like I'm in the void. Cool. Maybe at some point um, you will discover actually that you're not in the void, but you actually are the void. So that might be something to, to yeah, I'm just throwing this in as a running commentary. at um, first it does feel like you're in the void. Eventually you will actually feel like you are the void. So there's still a very subtle dual. If you still like if, if you feel like you're in the void, there's still, still there's still a little bit of sand at work. Back to you. But it then becomes obvious that once one has died, there is no body to center on. Correct, centerless space. So what practices might help me and all of us prepare for the bardo and the lack of a body? Uh, That's a big question. Um, Well, in general, uh, meditation and the path altogether is all about this. Um, Decentralizing, um, moving, removing the hitching post, removing the reference points altogether. But specifically in relation, especially with uh, what Glenn was just talking about, one of the most important things you can do here um, if you're not doing the formless, full formless meditations of what's called Mahamudra and Dzogchen, what Glenn was referring to, the practice of open awareness. This is Mingyur Rinpoche's terminology for non-referential shamatha, shamatha without a sign, awareness of awareness. I like his term, open awareness. Um, And actually in our Monday night trajectory of meditations, we're gonna spend a ton of time on open awareness. This is a colossally important um, practice because what the practice of open awareness does is in fact, it fundamentally allows you to um, come back to awareness itself. So that when you when you buy when you buy when you die it's exactly like you said you, you do become nobody no thing empty, um, but that emptiness is not nothingness. Just like you said, it's full and empty. That fullness is is the lucidity of awareness itself. And so the practice of open awareness is colossally helpful here, where the training is is yeah you no longer come back to body and breath because you don't have one but you come back to awareness itself because that doesn't die, it's formless, it's deathless, it's unborn, it's undying. And the practice of open awareness, even though it's not fully non-dual, it's really close. And until you do the full non-dual practices, which open awareness actually is a platform into, open awareness itself is super powerful, super important practice. Um, And again, so much so that um, I think I told you, you know, I'm writing these two books, The the second book is actually, half of the book is on this practice of open awareness. It's that important. Um, Yes, so in terms of studying, that's also super helpful. Uh, One of the most important things to study here is the the teachings on the trikaya, T-R-I-K-A-Y-A, the three bodies. Because what you're alluding to here is exactly right. You know, we don't just have the physical body, as you know, within us, we have the subtle body. That's where the central channel is. But there's actually even something more subtle than the central channel. Central channel is still connected to subtle body. Even within, below, with, uh, underneath, that is the very subtle body, machikpatiglay, indestructible bindu, indestructible continuum. And that, that's, you know, dharmakaya, I mean, um, sorry, nirmanakaya, outer body, sambhogakaya, inner body, dharmakaya, innermost body. Exactly the bodies that are revealed through the bardos after death. So you're gonna be, the reason you wanna do this now is because you're gonna be forced to do this when you, you die. This is the amazing thing. This is exactly where you're gonna go when you die. So your question is brilliant. Do it now. Die to the outer form, transition into the subtle form. That's the, the central channel thing. That's still a transitional object. That's still a transitional form. It's not still fully formless. It's a really powerful transitional step, but that's just the depth of the body. Now we want to go with even the death of the confused mind. So then you want to transition from that kind of Samogakaya level into the Dharmakaya level. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm juxtaposing different maps and the tr- kind of doctr- doctrines here. So I would study the, learn about the Trakaya. And then I would also um, learn about subtle body teachings. And then of course, all the while, emptiness, emptiness, emptiness. Okay. Oh, follow-up. I'm practicing the headless way right now. Seems like it's open awareness. Yeah, it, sh- it totally is. And so again, in, you know, if you're in the Dreams of Light book study group, right? This is precisely what we did in that one chapter, which in many ways is the central center of the whole book, which in fact goes into the headless way. <laughs> so literally meditations on um, headless awareness. So something like that, that's, re- that's cool, good for you. Okay, one more, and then we'll open it up to a couple live ones. From Joni, what is your view about the role of prayer wheels? Oh yeah, I love them. In gaining merit, I'll read the whole thing and then I'll do my riff. Uh, what is your view about the role of prayer wheels in gaining merit and maybe helping achieve enlightenment? Here are two quotes I found when researching the subject. Quote, Amitabha Buddha said, quote, <laughs> anyone who recites the six syllables Hum." while turning the Dharma wheel at the same time is equal in fortune to the thousand Buddhas. I love these kind of statements. His Holiness Jigdal Dakshin Sakya, I don't know him. That's cool. He also pointed out that Padmasambhava said, even those lacking perseverance in their practice who pass the time passively will be able to attain mystic powers. Those with perseverance for reciting the mantra and turning the wheel will undoubtedly attain the tenth level. So that's the tenth boomi. End quote. Yeah, well, a couple things. Um, you know, first of all, who am I to contest these statements? Um, are they literal? Are they hyperbolic? This is a really interesting one. I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm open on this one. And by, let me tell you what I mean by this. Is sometimes it's tricky to centrifuge out how literal these things are, and in fact, how metaphoric, parabolic, uh, allegorical they are. And let me give you one example. I I remember studying in the Barter literature, you know, teachings from the tradition. Oh, what is taller? The Mount Everest, I've been been to Mount Everest, by the way, it's really tall. (laughs) I've been above base camp and I'm still looking up, I was at 22,000 feet, and there's still a lot of like, you know, 7,000 feet to go. This is a big Mofo mountain. So when I was actually there, I was above base camp on pilgrimage. That's a bayou, by the way, those of you who've been there, Solo Kumbu, which is where Everest is, that's a, that's a bayou, that's a hidden land. So that's the, this is the stuff I'm gonna talk about with Bob Thurman, sidebar. So I was sitting there at, at above base camp, looking at the top of this peak and contemplating the statement that comes from traditions. What is taller, the tallest mountain in the world, here I am looking at it, really big, or the pile of bones that comprise your previous lives. Taller by far are the bones that comprise your previous lives. And I said, wow, that's a heap of bones, right? <laughs> so the other one was, what is, what, is, what is more vast? The tears you have shed through all your previous lives or all the oceans on the earth. By far greater are the tears you have shed in all your previous lives. And so I, 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 you know, I said, whoa, okay, that sounds good to me. But, you know, then... I, I asked my teachers and, and, and they said, these are not literal. They're hyperbolic, they're metaphoric, they're allegorical. they are ways to just denote the massive um, kind of qualities that are trying to be espoused here. So are these, are, these they, are they being literal? Are they being inspirational? Are they being hyperbolic? I don't know. Who's to say? But with that in mind, here's my riff on this. I totally groove on, on all this stuff. So right here, I have to show you, this is literally on my desk. You gotta check this out. So not only is this, this is, uh, this is a CYA move, right? I'm, I'm doing everything I can. And so this is not just, you know, I have another prayer wheel. If I could take my camera, maybe you can see it up there in the corner. Um, see if I can get this back in order here. But right here on, on my desk, I have, this is a battery operated prayer wheel, right? This is like the coolest thing. And so I'm sitting here, I'm not even doing it. I just have to buy the batteries to put it in here. And this prayer wheel just keeps spinning. And I'm sitting here, you know, I suppose I'm getting merit because I had to earn a few bo- dollars to pay for these batteries, right? But here it is, this beautiful little prayer wheel on autopilot spinning out all this thing. Is it really helping me? I don't know, maybe, but I can tell you what it does. Whenever I look at it, it makes me smile. Or, you know, over here. I mean, again, if I could show you on my study and I would, but it's so sloppy, I can't. So here's one of my main guys. I've got all this kind of stuff everywhere. This is one of my favorite rupas, Milarepa. And Milarepa underneath it, you know, this is taken out and it's filled with all these sacred scrolls and all this sacred stuff. And so I've got tankas everywhere. I've got all these props everywhere. It's like a a, a nickel and dime store in the Dharma. You know, why not? I look at this stuff, it makes me smile, it lifts me up. Is it gonna take me to enlightenment? Maybe, Um, but I can tell you what it does is it transports me into an enlightened space of mind right now. So I think this stuff is great. The prayer wheels are cool, the prayer beads are cool, offering incense, all this stuff is really great. Um, You have to decide for yourself, uh, Joni, you know, Are these literal or are they allegorical? That's up to you. So anyway, somewhere in there is probably the truth, but that's the way I relate to it. Okay, oh, but yeah, prayer wheels, prayer flags. I've got prayer flags everywhere as well. If you were to drive by my house, you would think it was a Tibetan shop in the middle of Kathmandu. (laughs) I've got everything around here. So I, I, I believe in these props. I think they're awesome and I've got them all over. So anyway, a couple of live questions now.
1: <laughs> yeah, we have uh, Chantal. Perfect. Hi. Thanks,
3: Andy. Hi, Andrew, so nice to be here. Oh my goodness, I just absolutely, this is my first time actually joining live for your Oh, Christmas awesome, birthday. welcome. And I, and I do wanna do more of them. So I have a comment and a question. Mm-hmm. So the comment is in just before Christmas of like obviously just this past year, I um, came across this neuroscientist by the name of Andrew Huberman, and he was talking about why it's so important to do sun gazing because it basically, like sunrise and sunset, because it basically activates through the electrical impulse in our eyes because mm-hmm. our eyes are an extension of our brain. Right. And it basically like restarts and re um, energizes our organs. So it basically makes everything work properly the way it's supposed to, sort of like the circadian rhythm. Right. So, anyways, I was going and I was like doing the sun gazing and everything and it's so crazy but like it led me to you and yeah it totally led me to you in a way that I kept like I it's almost like these intuitions would come about um kind of like the elements and the importance of like I don't know, the elements. So anyways, I started researching that and it kind of like brought me towards this whole Buddhism path and how some of these practices talk about the elements. And it's really wild, but I actually bought your dream yoga book last year because Christopher Wallace, one of my other teachers... Oh, he's great. Yeah, he's great. And he recommended you. So I I had bought your book, but didn't pick it up until I started doing the sun gazing practice. So between January and now, I finished both of your dream yoga and your dreams of light totally shifted my focus, my perspective, and I became very conscious of my contraction. Mm-hmm. So my question to you is, because I can't wait for your next book regarding contractions. And when I heard first heard you talk about that you'd be writing it, I felt like, oh my God, like this is speaking to me. And oh. so I just want to ask you, is there anything in your research for this book that you're writing that is so just makes you just so excited and that you would wanna share with people um, because I want like a teaser to see like what I'm gonna be looking forward to.
0: Oh my gosh, well, first of all, that's very sweet. Thanks for sharing all that actually means a lot to me. Um, yeah, I mean, so much to say. Ogi, um, yeah, so the the, <laughs> the, the book on um, contraction is is also, there, there are two main practices um, that are dovetailed, they're actually, they're actually three in this book that I'm really gonna unfold. And so the, the first one is, like I alluded to earlier with Glenn's question, the practice of open awareness. And, and that's really super important um, because open awareness is both diagnostic and prescriptive. And this is, this is really, one I think, one of the highlights of the book in that um, we don't really know how contracted we are until we have contrast mediums that actually reveal these unconscious processes. You know, they're they're so constant, they're so insidious, they're so omnipresent, like looking at the inside of your eyelid, we don't see that we don't see. Mm -hmm. And so um, when we're invited to do something, so like before we talk about contraction, I set the groundless ground in this book with open awareness, because what it does is it in fact creates this contrast medium that therefore, um, heightens our ability to detect how absolutely and ubiquitously we are contracting. I mean, we're contracting all the time. The very sense of self is a contraction. Every time we grasp attached, that's contraction. Mm-hmm. So, so contraction, the principle is literally about unearthing something that's so omnipresent that that it's it's a bit painful, revelatory, and then eventually liberating to actually reveal it. So that's the diagnostic part. You know, you, you engage in open awareness and you realize, oh my gosh. I had no idea I was so contracted. I'm contracting all the time, but that's really important because, you know, you can't um, bring about a prescription if you don't make a diagnosis. So the the sections on open awareness then lay the groundwork for revealing what I call the supercontractors And, and the supercontractors are twofold. One are the overt supercontractors like anger, rage, fear, all the things that we can feel like whenever you feel those emotions, you, nothing makes you feel more real, solid than anger, fear. And that actually in itself is really very interesting. It, it will help you understand why people default into anger when things are falling apart or why, why fear is so easily marketed because it's a fundamental biological, psychological survival mechanism. So those are the overt supercontractors. But even more important to me are these subversive supercontractors, the omnipresent ones. The ones that are underlying, they're so subtle, they're super in that sense. These are the subtle supercontractors that I identify in the book, You know, um, Dreams of Light, you may remember, I think I point out in that book, you know, what, it, what I talk about the primordial contraction, what does that primordial contraction feel like? Me, me. me. So whenever you say I, me, mine, that's just axiomatic. That's expressing that supercontractor. That's, that's actually what ego is. And that's maybe the highlight of that part of the book that you know, when we contract onto something, we contract onto the sense of self. Well, there's no self to contract onto. It's actually contraction itself that creates the sense of self. That's super important. That you know, every time, and this is why we do it, because if, if we don't, you know, this is the kind of heartbeat that keeps ego alive. And so by, again, bringing these unconscious processes into the light of consciousness, that diagnosis is a little bit painful, but it's also highly prescriptive because then it tells us what we need to do. We need to open, we need to open. And you know, the narrative, my favorite definition of meditation, I've said this countless times over the last number of years, is what, habituation to openness. So we're not habituated to openness, we're habituated to contractions. So this is, a, this is a, I think, a colossally important archetype, metaphor, uh, not metaphor, um, template for reality at all these vastly different levels. And so maybe I'll let it go for there, but obviously, you know, there's a lot to say. That's why you're writing a whole bloody book on it.
3: <laughs> sure, <laughs>
0: thank but, you. Yeah, yeah, something along those lines. And maybe uh, you can be one of my readers. So, you know, in a year or so, when it's good to go, I'll see if you want to be a reader and I'll send you my manuscript and you can let me know. Okay, oh, So you awesome. have to tell me tell me your name again, though, because otherwise I'll forget. Chantel,
3: yes. it's Chantal Sherry is my last name.
0: Okay, Andy will write that down.
3: Oh, that's so awesome! I'm so right. glad I asked this question.
0: <laughs> Welcome aboard. Nice to see you. Thanks for Thank joining. Thank you. Us. You too. Hi. Okay, uh, another live one, so to speak, and then there's a couple of written ones, and then I've got a few more minutes. Yeah, we, we can, can have bring
1: in uh, Rana.
0: Hello,
2: hi. Um, I'm very interested in the last sentence you said about that—that that we do not exist unless we make us solid with our thoughts. And I just think that I want to check with you that when Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche he talks about. Uh, broken heart of sadness, Mm -hmm. I think if we cannot get it solid, that's how we feel. We feel broken hearted,
0: sadness. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, who am I to say that that's not the way it shouldn't be? Is that what you feel? I mean,
2: Yes, because it's it's a process, but when it's not that it's a usual rock is pulled, it's like your ego become humiliated. And when the ego is humiliated, it's so hard to get it back together, glue them together. It's just you've seen something you were not supposed to see, but you saw it already. So... So, and I wonder where this, you know, it makes your heart melt for everyone because you see something, you saw something.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, the term, yeah. It was one of the most beautiful phrases that Trump uses. It's actually the genuine, heart of, sadness. And, genuine and, heart of sadness. And really, this is a really beautiful phrase because um, you know Rinpoche was a master of language, um, really interested in in word origins and how words could be used. and he and he he used words in really profoundly original ways, like goodness. I mean, you know, but basic goodness, yeah. he elevated to, you know a description of the nature of reality. And so when you talk about the genuine heart of sadness, it also connects to the root of the word sadness, which is connected to the word satisfy, satisfaction and fullness. So, he once said that in a conjunction with that, the ideal emotion is sad joy, sad joy, which is this kind of empty, full quality. It, it, it absolutely connects to emptiness and fullness. So the genuine heart of sadness is, is also connected, you know, it's one of these beautifully evocative poetic, right hemispheric, right brain phrases where um, it talks about. He was pointing to that feeling when you hear the most beautiful possible music, like for instance, for me, the second movement of the Beethoven fifth piano concerto where you just cry, it's sad joy. It's that kind of genuine heart of sadness, genuine heart of satisfaction in the completeness and the perf- perfection of the present moment. You know, he was pointing to this thing that he also talked about later. There's no such thing as an underdeveloped moment that if you relate to every moment properly it has this ineffable, seemingly contradictory, sad joy quality where it's full and empty at the same time. And so it's kind of like what you were talking about, you know, empty of self is full of other and that's simultaneously heartbreakingly sad and also heartbreakingly beautiful and rich. And so somewhere in there, I don't wanna kind of analyze it, you know, to death. I think it's more important to keep it in some realm of mystery um, and even poetic imagination but that's what comes to mind around that um, connected also to love, unconditional love connected to devotion and connected fundamentally to ineffability. And maybe with that said, I'll leave it in the ineffable quarters and, and let it go. Okay. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome. Okay. So a couple of quick ones here and then a longer one, and then we'll go back to a live one. So Myra, my dear friend, Myra, how does the protector principle relate to the principles that emptiness protects itself. Yeah, well, <clears throat> yeah. Um, emptiness is the ultimate protection. Emptiness cannot harm emptiness. So emptiness at that level, that is um, as they say in the absolute Bodhi or in the slogans, um, and also in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, that's absolute level protection. Emptiness cannot harm emptiness. So that's the ultimate protector principle. But again, you know these things are multivalent. They have different layers, and so relative protective principle is in fact protector deities working with this principle in, in a more uh, I guess you could say literal way, where you you invoke these energetics, whatever you want to call them, in in more overt ways to actually bring about protection. So. They're both, what you're talking about, absolute emptiness is absolute protection. Protective principle is more relative protection, but they both protect. In fact, as those mantra, right? Mantra literally means mind protection. From Marilyn, who, uh, why Manjushri? Why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> who else? I mean, pardon the joking, why not? I mean, for me, Manjushri is, he's my guy. You know, he's he's considered the father of all the Buddhas. He's one of the three, actually Bodhisattvas. Um, He's one of the three archetypal Bodhisattvas. Uh, Manjushri, wisdom, Chenrezig, Avalokiteshvara, compassion, Vajrapani, power. And so they are all basically, you know, three aspects of the same diamond, but Manjushri, cultivates the quality of incisive clarity and um, intellect and scholarship. And so for whatever reason, that seems to be my predisposition in this world. You know, I'm a nerd, I'm I'm, I'm a fusty intellectual, right? I apologize, I'm so sorry. I'm really working on it, but I I just can't help myself. (laughs) So because of that, Manjushri is my guy. And actually my Bodhisattva name, and someday maybe I'll share the story how I got my Bodhisattva name, Tranga, Tranga Rinpoche gave it to me. It was a really very powerful event. Um, he gave me a name that was connected to Manjushri. And, and so, because that seems to be kind of the frequency domain where I have some capacity, not me, it's just like what I've inherited. I just, I resonate with that. I work with that. I recite his, monst- his mantra constantly. I do his practice every day. He's just my guy. But you know, they're all the same. Like I mentioned playfully, they're all cross-dressers. So Manjushri, Vajrapani, avalokiteshvara they're all the same. They're just different bandwidths, different frequencies of the same fundamental principle that gets centrifuged out for purposes of teaching, exercise, heuristic, and the like. So anyway, I love him. He's, he's the father of all the Buddhas. Also on my desk, I didn't show you. So I've got, I've got Mama. I've got Papa on one side and Mama on the other. So on one side I have Manjushri, father of all the Buddhas. On my other side, I have Prajnaparamita, the mother of all the Buddhas. So I have Mama and Papa on either side of me and I'm, I'm their pathetic progeny stuck in the middle. Okay, Anisha, do only Vajrayana practices, do protect, uh, practitioners do protector practices? No, anybody can do them. No, anybody can do them. They, they come from the Vajrayana tradition, um, but anybody can do them. And so therefore, maybe someday we'll do a whole program on protectors. Um, when Trungpa Rinpoche left Tibet, you know, he left <clears throat> really with, he, he ran for his life fundamentally. You can read about it in um, Born in Tibet. One of the very few things he insisted ta- he take with him and he did take with him was a rupa of Mahakala, um, one of the main protectors. So Mahakala, Vajra, um, uh, Ekajati are his two main peeps, his two main protectors. And, you know, I remember the Dorje Lopan, one of his main senior students um, told me, he said, you know, it's, it's really, as a student of the Vidyadhara, the Vijadara, Trungpa it's it could be of some interest to us to establish a relationship with these, whatever you want to call them, energetics, phenomena, Um, And so I took that very seriously. And because I've had, you know, because I've taken it very seriously, I've had, you know, some incredibly beautiful experiences with these protectors. I can tell you right now, they are as real, like I mentioned earlier, they're more real than we are. They're more real than we are. And they can help you. As in fact can, you know, this whole array of these bandwidths of enlightened energetics, Yidams, Dharmapalas, Lokapalas, Chetrapalas, all these amazing peeps. These are our peeps. Or at least they're available to us. Why not call on them? Why not use them? So if you want to, maybe we can do something about um, introducing some of you to these protectors. I do these puppies every night, even if I'm lying in bed and I I'm like, oh man, I forgot to do the protector thing, which is pretty rare. I, I sit up in bed and do them. I do not go to sleep. I never miss a day without working with these energetics. So we can say more about that later if you want. It's really cool stuff. Okay, from Jolene, hi Andrew, can you make a distinction between open awareness and non-meditation? Uh, yeah, nice sensitive question. So um, yeah, uh, open awareness is still as, as beautiful and powerful, is amazingly fantastic as it is. It's still not completely uh, formless. Um, it's still ever so slightly not uh, dualistic. Um, Non-distracted non-meditation, not just non-meditation, non-distracted non-meditation, that's um, complete formless practice. And so uh, there's so much to say here, Jolene. One very brief summation between these two, and then if you do open awareness, maybe this will speak to you, is that the fruition of open awareness is, you could say on one level is, Um, Awareness of awareness, it's still awareness of. This is really subtle, it's really subtle, but the transition from open awareness to full-blown non-distracted non-meditation is very subtle. So awareness of awareness is another way to talk about open awareness, awareness of. Non-distracted non-meditation is awareness as. One word makes all the difference in the world. Awareness of still in the realm of of uh, namshe, still in the realm of consciousness still in the realm of selm sem super subtle but it's still awareness of non-distracted non-meditation is awareness as awareness as and i'm going to leave it at that as a kind of koan okay uh one more from tim and then we'll take a live one and then um it's time to die <laughs> From Tim, hi, Andrew, I'm so interested in how we come to be as individuals. Yeah, no kidding, isn't it me too? Really, really interested. You should read, Tim, if you haven't read it, and I don't know if you're in the Tuesday group, I sent a link in that group, a really, really interesting interview with Sean Carroll, he's a theoretical physicist, he has a new Podscape. Everybody has a um, um, podcast now. So he started his, it's called Mindscape, I think. And recently he interviewed, uh, Robert uh, Sapolsky, who's a really terrific character, polymath, anthropologist, historian, biologist. I mean, this guy's like, he's amazing. And he's got a wicked sense of humor. I just love this guy. So the reason I mentioned this is he just published a book called Behave, which is like, I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to. Um, and it's all about, from a scientific point of view, why, why do we behave as we do? Why do we do the things that we do? I'm absolutely gonna devour this book. The conversation is really interesting. Um, you can probably look it up if you look up Sean Carroll and Mindscape. Um, but one thing I could tell for sure when I listened to the interview, the podcast, is that as compelling as it was, there was no intimation whatsoever, as you might expect, about karmic influences, about all these other Um, contributors to what we come to know as individuality that are completely outside the realm of materialism. And so I find this super helpful because not only do we as psychospiritual psychonauts, as Rob Thurman talks about it, have all these really interesting ways of looking at how we come to be what we are. If we augment that with books like Behave and also Robert um, Bruce Lipton's work, Now you start to get an understanding of how complex this whole thing is. How many forces are at work? Um, This is why I like the whole integral approach. There are all these ingredients that come together to create this illusion called me. And until we tease that stuff apart, we're gonna be victims of them. So anyway, back, sorry. I'm so interested in how we come to be as individuals. Me too. I know the concept that ultimately we don't exist separately, but we certainly experience what we do from our own perspective. So why is this so? Are we just the spontaneous creation of the pure light mind or is there a hidden purpose? Do you have some thoughts on this? And can you share with us? I have to almost like burst out laughing, bro, because this is a colossal question. (laughs) It's like, okay, I mean, do we have like 100 years to unpack this thing? Oh, Lordy. So, okay, briefly, yes, on one level, are we the spontaneous creation of the pure light, clear light mind? Yes, it's just play, lila, ropa, shine. On one level, yes. Is there a hidden purpose? No, there's no teleology, there's no eschatology. Um, There is no purpose. The purpose you you could say is to discover that there is no purpose. (laughs) You have to centrifuge out here the difference between relative and absolute. This is the more absolute approach. Um, we certainly experience what we do from our own perspective. Why is this so? Oh, Lordy. Um, oh, my gosh. So many reasons uh, fear, fundamentally, ignorance, my rigpa, not knowing any better, um, karmic inheritance, biological inheritance, social inheritance, cultural inheritance. So I'm just going to defer to what I was saying at the outset. The first, the second part of your question, on one level, Easy to answer, not so easy to understand. There is no purpose, there is no teleology, it's just play. And even all that has to be put into quotation marks because it, this is completely transcendent. On a relative level, there are hundreds of reasons. Um, and so, again, you know, based on what I said at the outset, I, I explore all of them. What, in fact, are all these reasons? Because the question is so big Tim, I I kind of have to let it go because I have to go unless there's one last one live. (laughs) Great question, my friend.
1: No, nothing else. Oh good, we're all dead.
0: We're dead. Thanks everybody. So to whatever extent the dedication of merit means something to you, whatever of value and merit we may have gathered during the session, we can send it to all sentient beings. And in particular to these 10 beautiful lives that were lost prematurely this week. So thank you everybody for joining me. We'll be back with our regular sequence of events, um, you know, starting next week, but until then take care of yourselves, treasure each other because you never know if the next breath can be your last really, you never know. So until then ciao, everybody, take care.